Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Well, thank you again, Hope Springs, for having me out and sharing with you. Um, when we walked in, Steve said, I wonder where everybody is. And evidently, I scared part of the congregation away, uh, which probably would be true. And, but, on a positive note, um, I got to attract a few people here. So, I want to introduce a couple of friends from also 100 years ago. Um, uh, and that's Donna and Richard, who come from, now where are you guys living again? Wait, Kent. Kent. How far is Kent from here? It's about 100 miles? Yeah. And realizing California distance, that's nothing. I mean, seriously, we had one guy who was traveling that, that far just to come to church every week. So that's California, you know, we're just what we are. Um, but, so we wanna, I want to welcome you guys for coming all this way just to get a hug in person. Uh, I don't know how long ago, it was maybe like five, six years ago, seven years ago, we did a Genesis Factor in um, Bogner Regis. Did I say that right? Yeah. It was really interesting. It was when I first came here, they were calling it Bogner. And I just thought they kept on mispronouncing Wagner. Because <laughs> that's where I just came from in Germany. So back then it was the same thing. It's like, why do they keep talking about going to Wagner? We're in England. Then I realized it was Bogner and understood. So we did one there, and that's where uh, uh, Richard and Donna and I met. And Simon, also a writer, by the way, um, uh, is a good friend also. And we sp spent so much time then and, and uh, have kept communication, particularly Richard and Donna. We do regular Zooms together and, and talk, and they actually watch our Sunday services on occasion from Oasis. And so it's been fun. So I wanted to introduce them to you because... You're, this is my family in England. They are part of my family in England, so we're all just one big happy family. Is that okay? I keep pulling this thing off. This is going to be really fun. I've got like two microphones. And I'm very self-conscious of cables because my son, who does all of our live streaming, which we started like two and a half years before COVID ever came into existence, um, he ma makes sure that none of my cables are showing and all this stuff, so I'm like really conscious right now about this, so I'm <laughs> trying to get through it. Let's talk a little bit what we want to share about today. Um, Steve, Susie, and I on Saturday were chatting a bit, and Steve was telling about some of the direction he feels he would like to see the church go and some of the direction, particularly message-wise. So we began talking about this thing called the table. Maybe you've heard this before or that it's forthcoming. So I said, you know, I, I have a thought. So I figured I would share my thought to contribute to your point of view or your perspective on what this thing, the table is. So I titled this called Opening Your Eyes to the Table, quote-unquote, So-Called Spiritual Warfare from a Christ-Centered View. And I say so-called spiritual warfare is, I think, probably one of the most misused things we ever hear in the church is this thing called spiritual warfare, which, in my view, is... I'll be blunt up front, is a paganized version of, of spiritual battles that we really don't need to be engaged in. The more you engage in it, the more you empower it. 
That's just kind of the way it is. So what is God's perspective of this? And I'm going to use one of those scriptures, actually a couple of scriptures, but one of those scriptures where I think we tend to stop at a certain point because we want to empower the idea of heavenly conflicts between good and evil. Um, but if we read a little further, we may find that actually that's not the case. So here we go. Let's take a look at this. Now, you probably know this. Um, come on, move. I think my, come on, tablet, do something. There we are. Everybody knows this verse, Psalms 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And it's interesting. How many of us have had a picture of the devil trying to attack us right in front of God and God gives us a banqueting table so we can fellowship with Jesus and look the enemy in the, in the eye and say, ha ha ha, I got my banqueting table and you're, you're doomed now. But is that what God really has based himself in? Is that where God's mind comes from? Is that what the nature of God is revealed through Jesus? Is God really saying there are those circumstances and people who are against you? And he stands with you against them. Those people. And that he's going to cause your blessing and prosperity to happen despite them. Now, believe me, I know there are folks that can be against us and all those things. But what is our point of view? How do we, if you will, manifest the revelation of the Christ in those situations, I can almost guarantee you it's easy to fall into the trap of God's on my side, not on their side. You know, in American football, you know, with the helmets and all that stuff, it's interesting because there are players, and maybe you guys go through this in, in, in football, I know, real football, soccer, real football, um, I mean, after all, you guys have rugby and you don't wear shoulder pads or anything for that, so, you know. But then again, <laughs> how many rugby papers I, people I've met with missing teeth and all that stuff. So, <laughs> maybe a helmet would be nice. But point is, is, how many times you see one team bowing a knee and praying to God to play, and then you have the other opposite team bowing the knee and play, praying to God to play. I mean, America has had, literally back in the 1800s, a civil war... <laughs> not to mention the current atmosphere, um, but have had a civil war where on the north, people were praying to Jesus, and those on the south were praying to Jesus, and then both took up guns and killed each other. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Right? Is that how that goes? Let me give you a couple of examples here. For example, I just got this off the, the internet. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And here you see the little table, and there's a person on their left talking to Jesus on their right and all the enemies around them screaming and yelling and shouting. This is our point of view. This particular one is actually from a video I watched. You can't see it too well on the, on the screen up there, but what it actually says is the name of the video is, the video is Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. And I put smiley faces on some of the people and the preacher because I really wasn't trying to defame the preacher as much as the idea. In one respect, as you listen to the message, it's like, okay, I kind of get it. 
but it doesn't really convey what God has because laced in the message is always those people who are against you. It's always the devil that wants to attack you. And you notice the devil's always on the outside trying to attack you. And Jesus is always on the inside of you, all happy. I would suggest to you sometimes we need to look in the mirror. Ideally, we should see the Christ in us. But you can also see the devil. Yeah, you can. You know what I mean. I'll give you an idea here. Um, there was a... <laughs> A little five-year-old boy, a friend of mine was associate pastor, and he and his wife had an argument. Just in case you didn't know, pastors and church leaders with their spouses do have arguments <laughs> sometime. Probably not here. <laughs> but they do, they do. So, so he was about to take his little boy to kindergarten. I don't know if you call that same thing here in, in the UK. But, and so he's holding his, his little boy in his arms, and he's still, they just got done fighting, and he's taking him to school. And uh, the little boy took his father by the chin, looked at him, true story, said, Dad, you okay? And he says, Ah, just me and your mom. And he goes, Yeah, it's really hard when the devil gets in you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to suggest that if we interpret everything from the standpoint of good versus evil, us and them, heroes and enemies, also known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of death, right? Genesis uh, three uh, two seventeen. We still require further uncovering of Christ within us. If you live in a good and evil world, you're living in the serpent's tree. Getting out of that mindset is not always the easiest thing to do because it's not a change of your thinking as much as it is an embracing of humility. I am convinced of this also. The gateway to true revelation of the Christ is through humility. The humble heart is what opens Christ. Not how right I am. The alternative is that we've stayed in a serpentine mentality proclaiming God on our side, which we see as good, and the way I think is good, God is totally affirming that, obviously. If I'm right, God agrees with me, right? And those that oppose me would really be the enemy, because surely God agrees with me and doesn't agree with them. Thus, the way they think is evil. For that matter, before we proceed, there may be those that are still in that space of thinking among us right now, and I'm just going to ask you to try to open, not so much here as someplace down in here, and sense something with me. The idea of showing you those pictures was not to say they are wrong and what we're saying is right. But if that's how, again, if, that's how, if we're still in that binary serpentine thinking, that's exactly what we went to. What I'm trying to explain or show is that we perpetuate that way of thinking through this, these ideas. And it's all around us. Because you might say living on planet Earth is like living in a fish tank. There's water all over around you. The fish doesn't know that it's in water, but it's 
constantly breathing this substance we call water and the only time the fish knows there's something wrong is when somebody takes it out of the water. If not, it knows its environment. I'm going to suggest to you that this right and wrong, good and evil, us and them mindset, this death mindset is the environment we live in. It's what we breathe. But at the same time, as we become, I'll say, Christ aware. You know, I say aware. I didn't say know about. One of the biggest challenges I think we have in the church is we know more about Jesus than we are aware of him. Does that make sense? And sadly, because we know so much, whether it's Greek, Hebrew, or Latin, because we can play that game too, and we will do a little of that, we think we know something more about God. But I'm going to suggest again that Revelation has little to do with this and everything to do with the attitude of this. This is to... I I don't know about you, but I used to be taught, well, we need to get the Word in us. Let's think that through for a minute. I need to get the Word in me. So we're reading our Bibles, so we're thinking... And I would actually remember a preacher who I once called a mentor say, yeah, you've got to get the Word from here down into here. That's a whole lot of work. But actually, it's the other way around. The Word has always been here. The Christ has never left. It's always, he's always been there. Actually, you and he are so one and the same. If you're really walking the walk, you won't know the difference, which is the key idea. As one rabbi said, you truly know when you're in a dialogue of prayer when it turns into a monologue and you don't know who's speaking. I thought that's a really wonderful way of putting it. So what if I was to show you a completely different idea of that verse? He sets a table before you in the presence of your enemies. So now it's about getting what lives in here to finally start to talk to here. So here's an interesting set of verses. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 12, and we're going to go all the way to 23, but we're going to take it in bits. And one of the servants said, now here's the backstory is, uh, if you will, that this is a situation where you have the king of Syria wanting to know he keeps losing battles. And the result is, this fellow is telling him, well, this is prophet guy that Israel seems to have, his name's Elisha. And what happens is, is he winds up telling, you, telling uh, Israel exactly where you are, right? They can even tell you where you're sleeping. So, here again, and one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elijah the prophet, because the king was now asking, who's, our, who's a traitor in our camp? He says, None, my lord, O king, but Elijah the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he's in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night, surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, master, what shall we do? It's interesting these words that are here. 
there are certain things encrypted here. The first thing I want to point out to you is the word Elisha. Let's take it away from a person for a minute and let's move this into a state of being. Because any good Jewish rabbi would say to you, there's an Abraham, there's a Jacob, there's an Elisha, all living on the inside of us. Because these are inner states. Thus, we say Jesus lives inside us. How does that work? It's a state of being as much as it is the reality of God. Make sense? Okay, so what we first have is Elisha. Elisha is two words. Eli, which means my strength. Technically, there is no word for God in Hebrew. We have made it that way. But Eli means my strength or my God. So like when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, Elama Sabachthani. Right? My God, my God, why have we forsaken my God? Eli. Okay, that's the first one, my God. And of course, the second one is Yeshua, which means freedom. So my my state of freedom and strength is what we're speaking of here. Uh, Yeshua, we usually use the word deliverer, but it is an imperfect tense verb, so it's not about one who is delivered or necessarily delivering. It's an ongoing state of freedom. So that's Elisha. So now we're speaking about this place of liberty and freedom. The next word that is interesting is the, is the word Israel because it says he tells the king of Israel. Israel is an interesting word too. Yeshar El is the two Hebrew words there. Yeshar means to, to, we usually use it as persevere, but it literally means to go straight to. Now if El is the strength or God, it means to go straight to God. One of the interesting things I heard years ago when I was studying Hebrew and, and uh, Jewish uh, Theology was as a rabbi said, for example, he goes, Israel is not, which was interesting, Israel is not a country. Israel is a mind that goes straight to God. Is that how we are? thought that was quite interesting. So we're talking about a place of freedom. We're talking about a place where one pushes straight toward God. That's their constant state of thinking, which is interesting the response was, and it was told him, surely he is in Dothan. And I like the idea of bringing this into it because it talks about everything else we just said earlier. Dothan is Aramaic and it means dualism. Dual. Right and wrong, good and evil. Their thinking is, surely he lives in dualism. Surely he lives in a place where there's right, wrong, good, evil, us, them, etc. Because that's where they live. But we're going to find... That's not really the case. I clicked. Or not. There we are. So, Jesus said that he's come to give divine life, right? In John 10.10. In the Father, as revealed in Jesus the Christ, there isn't right and wrong, good and evil as we perceive it. Rather, there is distinct, the distinction of life and death. Death by definition, those of you who know me, you know these definitions. For those of you who may not, let me just re reiterate for you, death is the knowledge of good and evil. Think about it. Go back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. All of a sudden we have the Adam, the creature called the Adam. It's not Adam and Eve, it's Adam. Eve doesn't get her name until after the fall. They were called Adam. They were a union, <clears throat> and actually the separation between the two started when they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that's when the Adam, the guy part, says to the female part, 
accusing God. It's the woman you gave me. It was the fruit of the tree that brings separation and distinction. Now, having said that, going back, so there's, we know the serpent in the tree. There's, there's a lot that, in matter of fact, the new book I've just written, it's called, it's Melchizedek Volume 2, Tree of Life Realities. We, I go through this in a, even more so than I did in the first book or in Genesis Factor. But the idea that this tree exists with the serpent in it, which through definition, the serpent is egoism. It's the ego, self-centeredness. All those things. Again, an interstate. And the serpent says to the woman, with her husband standing there, if you want to use those terms, again, they're not separated. And he says, mind you, they're already in the image and likeness of God, right? And what does the serpent say? No, 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 you need this tree. You see, God knows if you eat of this tree, verse 5, then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Um, no, she says, no, but it, we're not supposed to touch it. We're, I mean, we'll surely die if we partake of this. And he says, oh, no, you're not going to surely die. Because in the day that you eat this, then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah. And the notion, here's the point, the notion that I needed something more than what I already am is the fall. That's the beginning state of the fall. I need something more. Because what I am is not enough. You are already the image and likeness of God. And the moment we thought, I need something more, what's not spoken is the real key. It means... I'm not the image and likeness of God yet. I need something more. How many of us? Oh Lord Jesus, I need more of you. And he's like, Pfft. you've had the whole of me from the beginning. If we were to really pose the question. The issue is the us to unveil, to crack the outside of the nut, so to speak, of that egoistic hard shell that the tree and the knowledge of good and evil creates. That's what we want to penetrate through and reveal what's already been here. I'm convinced true biblical revelation is not new information. It's remembering your past. It's remembering your true reality in the heavenly realm. A revelation is remembering of who you already are. So, continue with the, with the thought. So death, by partaking of that tree... That's called death. Death is the knowing of good and evil, egoistically, which the death is not physically dying as much as it is believing falsely, I'm separated from God. Because you're not. Never have been. Never will be. I often wondered why some of the rabbis I've studied with always would scratch their head over the notion of somebody being separated from God. And yet, we've termed it that way. We've made the idea of separation. Now you say, well, what about these Bible verses? What about those Bible verses? Remember something about what the apostles did. They were writing to a people who had a certain mindset of understanding. 
So there are things that they are saying for their mental well-being, if you will, to draw them into a greater place of thinking. Unfortunately, what we do most of the time is we take that, that place of thinking, make that the doctrine, and put aside what they were drawing them to. Does that make sense? All doing okay this morning? Okay. So, in the end, death is only the absence of life. And when life is unveiled, death, the knowledge of good and evil, no longer exists. Hence, as the Apostle Paul says, barring from Isaiah 25, verse 8, death is swallowed up in perpetual splendor. We say victory. It's, it's uh, nitzach that's there, which really means perpetual splendor. So if death, if death is swallowed up by life, then the knowing of good and evil is swallowed up by life. When you enter into an awareness of divine life and what that means in you, good and evil does not even apply to you anymore. Nor to anybody else. How can that be? That's crazy. Oh, we'll get there. I wonder if my battery is dying on my... Here. Okay, next. So he answered... Now, remember, Master, what are we going to do? These chariots all around. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Assyrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike the people, to, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. I'm going to suggest to you this whole segment is about how you see. This whole idea that's present is about how you see what you see. Elisha, remember what that name means, is trying to get Gehazi to see something that he doesn't see. And he's trying now, we'll find, that who think, we think is the enemy to be blind to what they have seen. May I suggest to you, they came perceiving Israel as the enemy. God's about to change that. Consider Gehazi frightened because he sees an enemy coming. So step one is, now we're going to show them all these chariots of fire. And unfortunately, this in my view is where we kind of lose it. We have opened his eyes and we have the opening of the eyes and this is where people say, see that? There's all these fiery angels on our side and we're going to kick their... You know, we're going we're gonna to nail them now. God's on our side. And of course, the other guys are blind. Their blindness wasn't that they saw an enemy. Their blindness now is they can't see it anymore. Because that's what happens next. The dichotomy is the one whose eyes are opened will become the same as whose, those whose eyes are blind. In both states, the one who can see and the one who is blind will both perceive something they haven't conceived before. When Elisha opened the eyes of Gehazi, everything changed for him. When their eyes were closed from, Samaria, from um, 
Syria, everything changed. Now, interesting, what we have is that dualism again. It's the dualism of good and evil, right and wrong, us and them, the enemy, not my enemy, I'm the hero, we're the winner, compared to the Elisha idea, the one who is truly free, which is Chaim, life, the tree of life, in contrast to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we'll just call it the tree of death for short. Consider this, too, which is kind of interesting. It's in plural. It's never the tree of life, actually. It's the tree of lives. And there's a couple of reasons for that. In Hebrew, they will pluralize a word to make it sound bigger or grander. But it also is to suggest that there is a constant process of life happening as well. So this is more that you, you can say, well, this is where some of the rabbinical teaching about reincarnation comes in because it's tree of lives, not tree of life. All this stuff that they gets in there, we, may, we as Christians sometimes, uh, because we're not looking at languages and what's behind that, we may miss a couple of pointers. But whether we're not so much talking, in my view right now, about reincarnation and those things, we're talking about the power and the magnitude of what divine life is like and how it swallows up the dothan, the dualism of right and wrong, good and evil. Then it says, And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city? Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. So he led them to, of all things, Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes. Now their eyes are being opened. What's interesting is it goes on to say, and the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. And now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Please note, even the king here is seeing an enemy. Everybody's seeing, and we're in a seeing mess at the moment. But what was Elisha saying? What is really the end game here? Because endgame, it's not about dualism or life. It's about life swallowing up this dualistic knowledge of good and evil. So it becomes this. And he answered, You shall not kill, kill them. Would you kill those whom you've taken captive with your sword or your bow? Set, actually not food, but it's lechem. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Now here's a real interesting thing. Notice this. He prepared a great feast for them. We're not doing bread and water. This is going to be feast day. Something shifted. Now my enemy is not going to have a feast. And I'm going to prepare that table for them. Jumping ahead for a moment, the concept of God preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies is not about us having a table and na-na-na on the enemy, 
but it's about welcoming them to that table and us to sit together. That's the true spiritual warfare. You want to call it warfare? Right there. Eating together, the victory's won. The battle was not about defeating them. The real battle was in me, seeing them differently to open the seat at my table. That divine life of Christ within us, the God of freedom, doesn't kill his supposed enemies, nor does he just give them bread and water. He makes a great feast and eats and drinks with them and sends them on their way. It's interesting because it then finishes with, then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And they went to their master. Now listen to this. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Why? You don't attack your friends. Now it's not over. Israel's going to have a lot of other problems and verses to come about other things. But this to me is just a, a powerful rethinking. We've taken these verses and made spiritual warfare about us and them and God's on our side and we've got angels and he's going to destroy the enemy that's come against us whether they're liberals or conservatives or whatever they are. Believe me, we've got a lot of mess going on in our country right now by that because you guys don't have problems like that here. <laughs> hey, there's a couple of times, I know this is being recorded so I won't let it out, but there's a couple of times I've actually tried to call the queen <laughs> and I've said like, remember the Boston Tea Party? You know, we threw tea over the side... It was all just a ruse. We're really sorry. Can we come home now? <laughs> he sent them away. Vayashalechem is the Hebrew word there. Vayashalechem. He sent them away. Sending. Vayashalechem. Think about that. I, he prepares. He prepares. And the word prepare, it was a, it was a deliberate intentional preparation. It wasn't throwing fruit, uh, bread and water to them. This was feast. This was uh, the Hebrew word there for feast. We're talking about banquet type stuff. And he prepares this for them. And then it says, and he sent them away. What's a key there is you don't see the word table up front. But via shalekim, the word shalekim, guess what? Shalekim is the word table. He prepares a table. Via Shalekim, you could have said, he prepared to send them away. But how was he sending them? They were now filled with the graciousness and the blessing and the kindness of one who they thought was an enemy now is not an enemy. Take that a step further. If you see that Hebrew word there, it's, it's from right to left. It's Shin Lamed Chet Nun. Now, if, if I drew a line right between the Lamed and the Chet, which I didn't have time to do because I was doing that right in the back before I got here, I said I needed to add this. Shell in Hebrew, the, the, the Shin Lamed, can mean to put forth... Um, uh, sometimes it, it has a nun in front of it, which can mean to divide or to, to change something. But you know what the last two letters are? Heen. It's the Hebrew word for grace. So, are we sending grace? Are we sending them away with grace? 
Another element too, if you broke down those Hebrew words uh, and those letters, you would say the table with the mem at the end, the previous word, it's that which flows, and then the nun at the end is a seed. And it's the table becomes a seed where you get to plant that flowing graciousness of God. But see, the catch is, I can't be trapped with a serpent mentality of good and evil, right and wrong, us and them, in order for me to deliver that level of grace to those who I think is my enemy. I can only deliver that level of grace is when they're no longer my enemy, but ones I love. Now, they may still think of themselves as an enemy to me, but that's not my responsibility at first. At first, mine is to not see them that way. And then, there is a possibility they'll crucify you. We have a good example of that. But I'm also under the impression that despite the crucifixion, the reason why Jesus couldn't stay in that grave is he can't kill love. Yeah. You can't kill it. You can't kill love, you can't kill divine life, and you definitely can't kill the light. You can't. Darkness will never put the light out. So even if you have an enemy, if you will, in their mind, that is out against you. The real warfare, if I'm going to use that term, is you loving them. I'm not saying you've got to put up with necessarily some of the things they're doing. But it's how I respond. What table, what seed am I sending forth to them as I walk through this? You know, sometimes we create more of a battle, which is the point, there because we're still stuck in the right and wrong good and evil mindset i would suggest this and maybe i've said this here before i don't know but i you know the apostle paul book of genesis both say that whatever a man sows that he also reaps right well if we add to that the theology idea that there's no time or distance in the spirit so sometimes you know we have maybe done something ourselves 20 years ago that spiritually the, the repercussion has is, is already happened in the spirit world it's already, you're already dealing with it in other words but for us we may not see it come to fruit, fruition 20 years later I'm going to suggest to you many of the devils you think you're fighting are just a reflection of what you've sown in the past that's why that devil doesn't seem to go down because it's you and until we make the inner adjustment and go back to a life-giving, notice I said go back to, because that's where we all came from, a life-giving space. And we're, we're having spiritual warfare all the time. And most of the time it's us. I break your power, devil. And I just say, I break your power, me. Especially the big eye between the S and the N. With that in mind, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The issue is how you see. Do you see with the eyes of divine life, or are we still shrouded with the knowledge of good and evil?
If we're Gehazi, we see the enemy encamped around us, then when our eyes are opened, still our vision really doesn't change, right? How many of us have gotten a glimpse of what God wants to do, then we repackage it right back into a good and evil mindset? God sh- we say God showed, actually unveiled. I prefer to use that word because the true word for revelation is apocalypse. I'm going to also suggest to you the book of Revelation is not about Jesus coming back because he's really ticked off. Like one preacher said, he's your savior today, but he's your judge tomorrow. (sighs) Well, I'm more convinced Jesus is trying to rescue us from hell, (laughs) this place, compared to trying to send us to it. But that's a whole other story for another message at another time. Uh, case in point, though, is he's prepared. What is it's about how we see? The thing is, I'm, I'm, if I can impress upon you, seeing it, I could show you Hebrew words. We can do all these gymnastics. We can take these concepts. And even these concepts may register for a moment. But even then, what has been open to us is temporary. What? Think of the Apostle Peter. Okay. So, he and Jesus and his disciples are hanging out one day. Actually, this comes from Matthew chapter 16, but we're just going to play it this way. He and Jesus are hanging around some day, you know, and they're chatting along, and said, Jesus says, Hey, who do you guys say I am? And some, well, some call you a prophet, some call you... And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Wow, awesome, you got that from my Father in Heaven. The guy doesn't go five verses... And all of a sudden, Jesus now, okay, they got it. He's the Christ. Now he's talking about what he's going to have to go through as the Christ to accomplish Christ's business. Peter gets up, far be it from you, Lord. Wait, wait, just, just, just a minute. Um, didn't you just get this? And what does Jesus say? The guy who just got the revelation from the Father, he says, get behind me, Satan. How did you go from glory revelation father to Satan in five verses? And the thing that's really interesting to me is when he says, <laughs> get behind me, Satan. You don't speak the things of God the way we really read that verse. In our minds, we go like this. Get behind me, Peter, for you don't speak the things of God but the things of Satan. But that's not what the verse said. It said, get behind me, Satan, for you don't speak the things of God, but the things of man. So, if you believe in an external devil, who really got insulted there? Devil, quit talking like a man. You'll do better. (laughs) Think that through for a minute. Well, actually, we're the chasatan. The adversity. Our ego does that. And that's what happened to Peter. All of a sudden, he, he shrouded the very revelation he had. You see, in, in my view, there's definitely different progressions. You can call it that way. In, new information is not a revelation. Revelation will change the way you think and the way you live. The catch is, is when it occurs, when it's open to us, nine times out of ten, it's happened because we tasted that humility for a minute. The catch is, is what we wind up doing is we then leave the place of humility and go back to the place of being right. 
And as soon as we do that, it's like the curtain falls again. Now, what was once life-changing and perception-changing revelation or an apocalypse that has happened, literally, okay, being that that has happened, and all of a sudden, I'm now repackaging it back to just a new bit of information on a verse of scripture that I have, and I'm the one who's right because I have it. <laughs> you unfollow what I'm saying? Here's another interesting verse then. Listen to how Jesus frames this. Remember the story about this verse where Jesus has these, uh, the, the, the bridegroom has a selected guest list that he's inviting and everybody's got an excuse. I can't, you know, you know I got a green grown toenail. I, you know, I can't, you know, well, let's not exactly say that, but you might as well. It just works, right? Notice what Jesus' words here when all his invitees doesn't respond. So those servants went out into, for those of you listening on the, on the tape or whatever it is, that tape, listen to me. I've got to be 62 years old if I'm calling it tape. <coughs> on the uh, MP3 digital stream, whatever you guys are using. Matthew 22.10. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, listen, both bad and good. It didn't just say, folks, it specified the dualism. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Why? He's not thinking on terms of bad and good. He's, Jesus is always dropping into it. Go, go through the, the Bible, the things that the New Testament that Jesus says. He says to the Pharisees when he healed the guy's hands, Well, should I do good on the Sabbath day or do evil? He throws at them. We read it as, oh no, you've got to do good. You can't do the evil thing. Well, if that's the case, he would have never healed the guy's hand. Nor would he have had a full haul. Because he's not thinking on those terms. This wedding banquet was not on the terms of good and evil, right and wrong. It was on, if you want to use a, an easy word, all in the family. And when we realize that both good and bad are just different sides of the same serpentine mentality. Welcome to all in the family. Then there's this. Matthew 5, 44 through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, you may, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. This is radical nuts stuff for the people he's talking about. Because they've lived by a law. The law has told them what was good and evil all the time. You do realize that the Ten Commandments, or the 612 slash 613 commandments, are just nothing more but an extension of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's why it always ends in death. The highest manifestation of worship in that system is the killing of the lamb. And may I suggest to you, when we get there, we kill the Lamb too. The Christ in us. We shroud it again. But if we step back from all that, are you talking about being lawless? It's not about being lawless. It's about being life-full. It's not about me not having laws. It's because when I'm life-full, I don't even have to think on those terms. Because both good and bad can come to my table, can come to my wedding. Can you imagine inviting your ex to your own wedding? No. 
Well, guess what? You, if we believed in all the separation stuff that a lot of the you know modern evangelicalism teaches and whatnot stuff, guess what? Jesus has invited his all his exes to the wedding. <laughs> Understand what love your enemies means. It means you don't have any. It means you just don't have any. It means if you love one, it doesn't matter how they perceive you. It's about how your inner life perceives them. And he continues, you know. After this, he talks about his father causing rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Why is he using those terms? For their sake. Father don't care. It's raining. Why? Because you're all invited. I realize I'm using certain kind of slur slangs to my, my language, and I'm thinking, you're in, you're in proper British world here, <laughs> using these words, and they're probably like going, like, I understood about three quarters of what he said. <laughs> but that's the point. Jesus is always going back to, you call them just and unjust. My father sees them differently. So how do you end this? I don't know. It means if you love someone, it doesn't matter how they perceive you. It's about how your inner life perceives them. Sure, they may be those that do some harsh things. And, you know, I believe in turning the other cheek. I believe in ducking sometimes too, but, you know... <laughs> It's about seeing divine life, opening your eyes to a table from a whole different perspective. The one where everyone's welcome, even the Judases. So, my friend Sai, I don't know exactly how to end this, except done. Awesome. Love you guys. Thank you. Oh, dear.